0: I'm Michael Sears, the director of the Leadership Innovation Laboratory at the Stockdale Center at the Naval Academy.
1: I'm Captain Ryan Bernanke, the deputy commandant for leadership and character development and the senior naval aviator here at the Naval Academy.
0: I'm in conversation today with Captain Ryan Bernanke, and we're talking about the do-over, specifically a story about the responsibilities of command. You're going to hear a wonderful story from Rear Admiral Larry Chambers. Admiral Chambers was the second African-American to graduate from the Naval Academy. He was the first African-American graduate of the Naval Academy to reach flag rank and command a United States carrier. He has a very interesting story that we're not going to cover here, but if you go to YouTube and type in frequent wind, you'll see some of the responsibilities that Admiral Chambers had to deal with. Captain, there's some flying technical issues and mechanics that... uh, Get pretty specific in this story. Do you mind uh, giving us a little bit of a preview,
1: Michael? I thought Rear Admiral Chambers' story uh, and and the way he wove it together was was really uh, was really profound and had me on the edge of my seat. But also, um, I could picture uh, exactly what he was talking about, um, and so I thought maybe it'd be worth framing a little bit of the story that starts in yuma arizona uh and it's a place where uh, the navy and marine corps aviators go to um uh, to learn how to shoot and and employ weapons a lot of bombing ranges out in that area what i thought uh, was really compelling was the picture of myself in his shoes as a, a train in a training environment getting um squared away to fly the a7 as a squadron commander He's sitting at the hold short. So you know, right before you take the runway, he's sitting there with uh, another jet, a couple of A-7s, and they look up and just over their heads come two other A-7s, and the one that's that's spitting fire out of the back. And so, just to kind of paint that picture, um, the the way you would enter what we call the break, um, you have an airplane or, or a formation of airplanes coming up uh, toward approaching the runway typically at about 400 miles an hour and somewhere around 800 feet off the ground. And as you uh, overfly the runway, uh, you the first airplane will, will break off and then the next one will wait a few seconds and then break off. So it's a you know, roll into a sharp turn and turn 180 degrees to enter a downwind. That turn um, slows the airplane down, allows you to get to a speed at which you can extend the landing gear and then continue the the turn all the way around to the runway. And so we do the same thing coming into a, an airfield as we would do overhead the aircraft carrier. And that that um, maneuver allows us to quickly bring airplanes in o- into the runway environment and then space them out by timing the turns um, you know at intervals so that you have enough interval for each jet to land. In this case, what uh, what he described was this this young pilot. Uh, as he as they are approaching the runway, inadvertently shuts down his engine, uh, and then is attempting to relight it, and and so the relight process at that airspeed and altitude just isn't going to work, and that's what causes the air, the engine to start throwing flames. He's um, you know, got way too much gas going in to the engine on the relight attempt, and it's choking on the fuel, and that's what causes the, the compressor stall.
2: My name's Larry Chambers, AKA Lawrence Cleveland Chambers class of 52. I would like to reflect on a couple of incidents that occurred when I was a prospective commanding officer of an attack squadron, and later a commanding officer of an attack squadron, doing training. And we were at Yuma, and I was getting ready to take off, and a couple of A7s overhead broke, and the leader was okay, but the wingman uh, had a long trail of flame coming out of his engine. Obviously, he, had, he was in a compressor stall. And so about three of us on the ground pressed on mics at the same time and said eject because there was no way in hell he was going to recover uh, and, and, and save the airplane or anything else. And he ejected and survived. And we were in the training squadron.
0: Let's pick up the Admiral's story in Yuma.
1: As I was listening to that, I could picture uh, what was probably happening in that cockpit for that young aviator. And while you're, you're not supposed to be able to turn your engine off, uh, inadvertently, um, what I assume, um, uh, happen, or something like this would happen is as the formation rolled out, the wingman, the, the young pilot pulled his throttle back to idle and either, um, accidentally lifted up the little safety guard that pulls the throttle into off, um, or, uh, Or it didn't work, but more likely when you're kind of white knuckled, you're flying tense because you're you're in over your head, um, you're really gripping that uh, throttle and the stick maybe more than you should. um, You can, you can, without even thinking about it, um, disengage that safety mechanism and, and put the throttle into cutoff and that's going to immediately Um, stop the fuel to the engine. Uh, At that point, you you don't have a lot of options. It's possible that that you could pitch up and enter a flame-out approach pattern if you had enough speed. Uh, That'd be a pretty varsity move to make at that point. Um, Probably not something you'd expect out of a student pilot.
0: Let's pick up the admiral story.
1: Later on, that same
2: individual became one of the pilots in the squadron that I was forming and working up and we were getting prepared to go to Vietnam. We were in the vicinity of Puerto Rico. Actually, we were down at the Vieques uh, area where we were using it as a bombing range, and we were doing night attack stuff. It was kind of a moonless night, and the weather was, uh, visibility was good. And I had launched on an earlier flight, and. I was waiting overhead at Marshall for them to complete the next launch so that we could start downhill and recover. And while looking out ahead of the ship, I saw a fireball right off the uh, front of the ship. And obviously, we had lost an airplane. I had an immediate call from the uh, captain of the ship uh, diverting me from my task of trying to land uh, on uh, Roosevelt, that was uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt, long since decommissioned. And I got a briefing, uh, a brief on air it was one of my aviators uh, that had just flown into the water. And my task was to uh, tank if necessary and fly on back to Cecil Field and to go with the chaplain the, the following day to inform uh, the next cannon. Not a very pleasant task. It's one of those things that that goes with command and responsibility. But the tragedy is the same fellow that ejected uh, over humor Yuma when we were there for gunnery in the training squadron was a gentleman that we had just lost off the bow. He was a Naval Academy graduate, very, very sharp officer. Uh, he was the admin officer for the squadron and his work was impeccable. But his a- aviation skills were but a little slow in developing, and, and and that's not unusual for what we call Nuggets, the young fellows just uh, out of high school and just out of the uh, training squadron. I was undecided as to whether or not uh, we were going to take him on a cruise. I really wanted to take him because he was such a fine naval officer. And I hesitated and hesitated. And like the previous squadron, I hesitated a little too long, and it's something that I have regretted all my life. It still haunts me. Uh, It helped me in in the future in terms of uh, making decisions. But this was a tragedy that could have been avoided and I could have been the link in the chain that could have saved that young fellow's life. He would have been much better off uh, in the surface Navy. And occasionally, we had guys that start off a little shaky and then they develop and they become good aviators and, and, and what have you. But I failed to recognize that that he wasn't going to hack it. When I went back and looked, uh, I wasn't involved in that accident uh, that, that happened at Huma. Uh, but when we went back and looked, there were some remarks with the board that was investigating it. And it turns out that he shut the engine down and then tried to get a restart as he was approaching the break, and that's that's an impossible task. Maybe if I had read that accident report before the tragedy, uh, I might have been different, but I have regretted all my life as to I waited too long to make a decision. I needed to make it, and it's not a personal thing. It isn't a question of whether you like the individual or don't like the individual. It's a question of he wasn't capable of doing the job that we wanted him to do, and as far as the aviation is concerned. And I have regretted it. And I still haunts me today. Uh, you know, it's one of those things, you can't relive it. There's no do-over. So my advice to the young folks is when you recognize it, you got to do something about it. you got to do something about it quickly. You've got to do it in a timely manner. And I deeply regret that I did not Act in time to save that young fellow's life. If you watch him out of aviation, now he's starting off uh, with a black eye. Against him, that doesn't mean he can't overcome it. I mean, a number of folks have washed have out of aviation, gone on to be very senior officers and make flag. But he's starting out, you know, kind of with uh, one hand tied behind it. Uh, the aviation, we, we have a tendency to confess our sins. If I do something in the air and I and and, and something weird happens, we all come back and we tell it because we want to make sure that the world understands that under these conditions, this machine is not going to hack it. And so uh, we have safety magazines and everything where where we would report incidents so that maybe the next guy, when he sees it coming, can prevent it. Operating off the carrier in the daytime is a piece of cake. I I, I say that, but I, I really mean it. Operating off the carry at night is a very different different proposition, and it requires uh, good instrument flying, good skills, or you need a lot of confidence in yourself if you're gonna gonna do it and do it successfully. And we lost a lot of airplanes uh, back in those days. And this young fellow lost the Navy uh, two airplanes. A lot of folks have jumped out of uh, out of failing airplanes and a liability now is it's kind of unbelievable. But we still have the problem of uh, can the ind- is the individual capable of doing what we're asking him to do? And, and it isn't a question of being able to do administrative work, take care of the sailors that work for you, uh, all of those things are a part of being, being in charge and being a leader. If you're going to be an aviator, you have to be able to fly the airplane. Some of us are a little slow in recognizing uh, who's capable and who isn't. And and as I reflect back, uh, I I could have used a lot better judgment. And after that incident, uh, I was probably a hell of a lot more careful in screening people and taking care. And also taking care of them. that desire and, and that uh, push, it comes after, after a few mistakes. I mean, we all make them. Uh, and we all have to learn to live with them. And my coming up, I had a, a number of forgivenesses from, from my commanding officer. Uh, when I was going to grad school, my first wife wife died. I later went back to a squadron, and this was within the first two years after she had died. And my commanding officer, finally, we were aboard ship, and he put me in my stateroom. Well, the moment you go in your stateroom, all of the paperwork that nobody wants to do winds up on your desk. Give it to Larry. He's not going anywhere. He can't fly. Commanding officer was trying to get my attention. He claimed that I was flying more than anybody else, that I was hot-dogging it. I didn't really believe I was. But... Did I have a suicide complex? I don't know. But Wally Laws got my attention. He was a commanding officer at the time. And boy, did I hate his guts. But after uh, almost a week in my room by myself, I decided I was going to change my ways. And I did. And they don't. Wally became my damn good friend. And in reality, he probably saved my life.
0: The Admiral was talking about the responsibilities he had as a leader and, and the decisions he made or the decisions he didn't make. But quite frankly, Ryan, what really are the ultimate responsibilities of a leader? Is it, is it to get the mission done? Is it to take care of the people or is it something else?
1: Uh, it's, it's definitely both. Um, and often those, those two priorities are, well, they're always the main priorities, but they're often um, pulling in opposite directions. Um, So I do think that a a squadron commander in this case uh, is charged with executing the mission and their mission was to train a squadron of A-7 attack jets up and prepare to go to Vietnam and then fight in Vietnam. That is a very tall order and it's a mission you would accept um, as the CO without the assumption of necessarily being able to bring all your people back, especially going into combat. In training, uh, you would ex- you, your your goal absolutely would be to bring everybody back. Um, you can't make that assumption when when you're being shot at. Um, the mission and your people often require different things, and so the challenge becomes taking care of both. Um, you know, always seeking to pursue the mission, but at the same time, putting your people uh, not necessarily first, but ensuring they're taken care of. Um, sometimes it's people first. Sometimes the mission is going to dwarf that. Um, And your job is to push back when when that becomes untenable, uh, when the people are being asked, your people are being asked too much of for the mission. And that's when your job is to look for ways to change the mission to adjust the mission parameters. Um, But you, you can't always. And and I think that's one of the biggest challenges that any leader faces is balancing taking care of their people and, and seeing to their every need, but also ensuring that the mission gets done. And, and a lot of times the stakes are really high for those missions.
0: It is amazing to be, you know, heads down in a, in a fighting hole and you actually see uh, a friendly aircraft come in, pitch over and start uh, tracing on a target. And you're sitting there saying, yeah, come on. Yeah, I need that right now. So it is a partnership uh, between all the players out there and sometimes mission requires uh taking those risks no question about it let's let's shift a little bit and talk about an aviator who is now a squadron commander and he is coming into uh the carrier and you know he's got a full plate of things to do it's night uh he's about to come down to land So he has his own responsibilities, but he's also looking down to see what his, uh, what his squadron's doing. Tell me about that a little bit and those kind of responsibilities.
1: Yeah, Michael, I I thought that was really, um, it it put me right in the cockpit when he said, when he described what that night looked like off of uh, Puerto Rico. Um, And, you know, he's monitoring his flock from above. And so the way that that works is um, we call it cyclic ops on a, an aircraft carrier. And so, um, they'll prepare a cycle of airplanes um, what, with uh, you know, fuel, ordnance, cetera, and then they'll launch them all off, usually somewhere between 10 and 15 airplanes will launch in, in about the same amount of minutes, and that'll clear out the landing area. So now that the flight deck it has room for the 10 or 15 airplanes that are overhead that launched on the previous uh, cycle – to come down and land and we will repeat that throughout the day and so when you're overhead waiting for your turn to land whether it's day or night um you, you have a sense of what's going on you can see the launch in progress on a clear night um you know f- from a, a good distance or from directly overhead and in the daytime you're, you're actually watching each airplane come onto the catapult and and you're counting airplanes coming off and so from a co's perspective um you know at that point he's got several thousand flight hours uh he's as comfortable as one could be flying off of uh, an aircraft carrier at night, which is not to say that you're chilling and and relaxed and comfortable, but you've got the experience and skills that things are slowed down for you. You've got the extra bandwidth to be monitoring other things besides just your own aircraft. Uh, You're going to be monitoring your flock. And so it, it made sense to me that he had sort of that you know, paternal or, you know, maternal, depending on, you know, who you are kind of feel, you know, that parental sort of feel uh, overhead the ship and he's watching what's happening. And then tragically, he sees a fireball off, off the end of the catapult uh, and gets a, a call that it's one of his. So, uh, you know, it just really is a gut punch. And I can't imagine what that flight back to Cecil Field was like for him. Yeah. It's gotta be a tough flight.
0: You know, there, there's no question uh, based on his history at the Academy, his work through, you know, early squadron workups going through different planes. And and now he's the man, clearly an accomplished aviator, clearly a darn good uh, commander. Let's talk about the do-over that he was talking about. He mentioned that uh, this young aviator did an impeccable job on the ground, but a little slow in the cockpit. And his concern is, you know... I, I'm going to take him to war. What goes through your mind as a CEO?
1: Yeah, I, I thought he, he did a, a really masterful job of, of describing the, the internal tug of war, you know, that, that internal strife that he was wrestling with. And in, in his assessment, as he looks back on it, he, he wrestled too far with instead of making a decision. I uh, I understand him taking full accountability for that and and admire it. That is what we do in the Navy and as as commanding officers. Though I'm not sure that he necessarily could have been had the foresight to see it. Um, but but what he identifies is is um, I think a it's the the learning points we can take away from him sharing this this thing that he you know that he's carried with him ever since is that um that the calls are never black and white it's always a very tough gray and in this case it's a great example right if this if this young officer wasn't an outstanding officer in terms of uh being a ground officer as a leader for the sailors um a great uh guy to hang out with you know you could you could tell this uh this young lieutenant had everything going for him until he got in an airplane and those are the toughest cases right if if he didn't have all that if he wasn't squared away Um, It'd be very easy to say, hey, this experiment has run long enough. We're going to find something else for you to do in the Navy. The ones that really put you in these predicaments are the ones that are so outstanding in every way. And you're rooting for them and you're mentoring them and you're 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 seeing, you know, you're watching closely and you're seeing incremental improvements. But is it enough? Um, is, Is he moving, progressing fast enough to be safe in this environment and effective? uh, in this environment. And, and clearly that wasn't the case for this young lieutenant. And, and then I loved that when he looked back and said, Hey, when we, when we then read the mishap from, from Yuma, Arizona, uh, all the pieces came in. And I think that's a really important thing is that he's looking back in hindsight and saying all the information was there. I just didn't have it enough to make the decision, enough wisdom to make the decision, or I, sh- I needed to make a decision, I hesitated too long. And that's always the case as well. Uh, when you look back, the hindsight is so much more clear than as you're, as you're dealing with all the other pressures of command and trying to build the squadron up to go to war of how is this Lieutenant doing? And do I have all the information? And I would say that very, very seldomly are all the pieces right there in front of us. And we still choose to make a a decision that has a result like this. I I think um, he takes full accountability for it, but it would have been very difficult for him to have made that call uh, and and I don't think many would have made that call. And yet he probably did in many other contexts save others' lives, just like the story he talks about with his own CEO saying, you're grounded until you figure this out.
0: Ryan, tell me this. What about this concept of making mistakes? I mean, this this series is about the do-overs. How important is making a mistake?
1: Well, uh, Michael, I I think it is. it's critically important. And and, you know, what, what Admiral Chambers is talking about is a, a big mistake. Um, and so that we can talk about the, those big mistakes, um, and, and he certainly is living with that, just as, as any commanding officer lives with big mistakes. Um, but we also can spend a lot of time really in turmoil over, you know, mistakes of any scale. And so I, I believe wholeheartedly that there is immense value in making mistakes and learning from them. Um, Admiral Chambers talked about the amount of uh, forgiveness he was afforded, the ability to continue to grow and learn all the way through into the flag ranks by people saying, OK, what did you learn? And let's move on. And now you're smarter, wiser and you're, you're going to make better decisions as as the scale, um, you know, and the and the the stakes raise with, with each, um, you know, progressive command that he goes to. And I think that, uh, I think that is a really key point here. And, um, uh, to me, it's, it's not about, um, just learning from mistakes. It's about embracing them. And so we can, we can start small scale. This is, uh, I think, core to Naval aviation. Um, and also many other aspects of our, our Navy and Marine Corps is that, if you think about a flight, if you think about you know, if you're embarking on a career as an aviator, you're you're going to make thousands upon thousands of mistakes. Most of them are really small, uh, you know, a little bit off in airspeed or altitude, or you know, you, you said the wrong thing on the radio, or, or and you meant to say this, or or whatever. Um, and and if you didn't have to learn by making all those mistakes, it, we wouldn't have to go through you know years of training to to become really competent uh, combat aviators. You would just, you know, hey, here's the book, read it. Here's an F-35, go fly it, and it'd be easy, right? And it's just not that way because you learn the most from your mistakes. And so um, in my view, you really have to make all the mistakes, all of the the small mistakes um, to to earn trust and and competence. Um, And I think that if you have that mindset, and this is what I would tell my junior pilots, um, when I was in command, I would say, hey, I, I'm not going to give you a section lead qualification until I think you've made all the mistakes. You're going to make those mistakes in a controlled environment with a, a qualified instructor uh, flying as your as your wingman. Uh, and once once I assess you've made them all, I'm going to give you that qualification with full trust and zero caveats. You'll be qualified to, to lead another pilot junior to you uh, and be responsible for his Super Hornet and yours or, or her Super Hornet and yours. Uh, in all weather in any condition day night combat uh, doesn't matter you're fully qualified and it takes making those mistakes to earn that trust and I think um, when it comes to senior leaders um, you know the stakes can certainly be higher and um, and you can eat yourself alive reliving those mistakes and assessing them not through the information that you had at the time but through the information that you have in hindsight and and while that's in a really important um, honest reflection. Uh, it also is something that you have to be very careful to manage uh, to continue to make effective decisions moving forward. In other words, you, you can't spend all your time uh, looking in the past. You just need to learn from those mistakes, uh, in, embody and embed those those lessons learned and and do better the next time. And so that ranges from you know being a little off your parameters and, and flying a better airplane the next day to, to making life and death decisions as a commanding officer. And, and the, the full spectrum, it's that same process of really reflecting and embracing uh, on those mistakes so that you can, you can internalize the lessons.
0: You know, I think you just created a mantra for this show, embrace your mistakes. You're not out there looking to make mistakes. Mistakes will happen. You will make mistakes. You want to embrace those mistakes so you can come back and think about them, debrief them. Learn as much as you possibly can because, again, you're going to make them, but you better learn from them. This is a serious business.
1: It absolutely is, Michael. I've never had a perfect flight Um, in over 4,000 hours. I've had some, some marvelously good ones, and I've had some really rough ones, but I've never had one that was perfect. Uh, I think the same holds true in every other aspect of our life. I've, I've never been a perfect officer. I've never been a, a perfect um, you know person. So I need to, to wake up with the same mindset that I, I need to continuously strive for improvement. I need to know that uh, I won't necessarily be perfect, but I need to be striving to get better every day.
0: Ryan, great conversation. This is fantastic. Uh, the do-over. Let's do this again.
1: I loved it. Thank you, Michael. And, and thanks to Admiral Chambers. Really uh, um, impressive stories and, uh, and my great admiration for him sharing all of that.